The upper limit problem is our tendency to sabotage ourselves when things start going better because we don't believe unconsciously that we deserve to have the good things of life. Hi everyone, you are listening to the Limitless Good Podcast. Today we have a very special guest who has transformed the lives of millions of people through his work on personal growth, relationship, and mind-body transformations. Dr. Gay Hendricks is a psychologist, author, and teacher who joins us to share his profound insights. As an author of more than 40 books, including the bestseller, The Big Leap, Gay Hendricks has been guiding people to live their fullest potential. So whether you're on a journey of self-discovery or seeking to enhance your everyday life, his wisdom will surely resonate. So let's dive in. You know, we're both like huge fan of your book, um, The Big Leap, and we have read multiple of your books. And the book was published in 2009. And to this day, millions of people have read it. And why do you think that book has resonated with so many people? Well, I think it's because it speaks to a problem that almost everybody has, that almost all of us have tried to change something and failed and then wondered, why did we fail? Well, in The Big Leap, what I do is I point out what makes us fail and how to fix it. And so it's a very practical book. Um, People sometimes ask me how long it took to write The Big Leap. And I say, well, it took me about a year to write it, but I'd been thinking about it for almost 40 years uh, because I started experiencing upper limit problems. Like that's one of the big concepts in The Big Leap. I started looking at my own upper limit problems, like the time that I went on a diet and I lost 35 pounds and then just had to have a ice cream sundae with three scoops of ice cream and caramel sauce and everything and made myself terribly sick. And I realized, oh, I sabotaged my good feelings. And why do I do that? And so that's what led me down the path of figuring out uh, all the things that are in the big leap about the different fears that people have and that kind of thing. Speaking of the upper limit problem, for those who don't know what upper limit problem is, can you dive a little deeper into that? Sure. The upper limit, our tendency to sabotage ourselves when things start going better, because we don't believe unconsciously that we deserve to have the good things of life. And so in the big leap, I talk about different experiences people had in childhood, for example, that makes them unable to enjoy the good things of life. And one of them is a lot of people carry around a belief from childhood that I'm fundamentally flawed in some way, that there's something wrong with me. I'm the wrong, I don't have enough smarts, or I don't look good, or... uh, I weigh too much or I weigh too little or I don't speak good English, whatever the thing is. We all have some kind of a thing that down in there thinks we think is a flaw. And so that keeps us from allowing ourselves to experience the good things of life, like love and good nutrition and good health and good relationships with our community. All of those kinds of things start inside. I don't think I've ever seen anybody that had a good relationship that also 
wasn't working on having a better relationship with themselves. That in our singles course, Attracting Genuine Love, we say that it's very difficult to learn to love another person until you learn to love yourself. And I found that to be true in my own life. Like Katie and I have been together for 44 years now. But I remember just before I met her, I turned a corner with something inside myself where I found myself able to love myself for things that I had previously discounted myself for or criticized myself for or censured myself for. I just decided right before I met Katie, I decided that I was going to be absolutely transparent. So if I was angry at somebody, I'd tell them, I'm angry with you. Or if somebody hurt my feelings, I'd say, that hurt my feelings. Or if somebody, if I felt scared, I'd say, I'm scared. But I wasn't going to hide anymore. And the other thing I decided that I wasn't going to play victim anymore in my relationships by blaming the other person when stuff came up. I was going to say, okay, hmm, how did I create this in my life? And so that became a huge turning point. And right after I made that turning point, one month later, I met Katie. And so that to me is a miracle that you can test, you know, you can chalk that right up to me getting into alignment for the first time in my life and then finding the relationship of my life one month later. To me, it seems like a miracle, even though I can understand it. So you made a conscious commitment to change your thought process. And as a result, you met the love of your life. Yes. And in fact, what happened was was really interesting because where I had my big bolt of enlightenment was right in the middle of an argument. I'd been in an on and off again relationship for five, almost five years with a woman named Carol, a wonderful human being. But she and I just couldn't get along for, you know, sometimes it was three days we'd get along and then two weeks we'd be fighting. Or sometimes it was two weeks we'd get along and then a week we'd be fighting. I hope you two have never had a relationship like that, but uh, maybe somewhere along the line you may have. Uh, Most of us have. But I was in the middle of an argument with her. I was 34 years old, so I'd been in this relationship on and off since I was 30. And we were having an argument, and I suddenly realized, wait a minute, this is not our 500th argument. This is our 500th version of the same argument. And that was a huge moment for me because I suddenly realized how they all went, how they were structured, and what caused them. And what caused them was one or the other of us was withhold something, like not talk about something we were angry about or something we were hurt about or um, that we would hide it inside. And then we would start projecting onto the other person, blaming the other person. Because somebody, if you don't trust them with your truth, you have to start making up reasons why they're untrustworthy. And so we, um, right in that moment, I realized that I was going to stop ever doing that again. I decided to blow a whistle on that. And I decided from that moment on, I was going to have relationships 
that had three qualities to them. Absolute honesty and absolute responsibility so that when stuff came up, as it always will, you didn't spend all your time in blame and defensiveness. That was what tripped up Carol and me. We would get into blame and then one of us would defend ourselves and then back into blame again. And that was would go on sometimes for weeks. And so I, I decided to blow a whistle on that. So I said, relationships from here on out, absolute honesty, absolute responsibility. And the third thing was, I really want my relationships to be with people who are actively involved in their creative path. And so that's what I wanted from then on. And when I got into my relationship with Katie, that was one of the first conversations we had. How do I identify if I have an upper limit problem? Well, there are several really simple ways to tell. One is if you find yourself worrying about the same thing over and over again, especially if you've worried about it three or more times, that's kind of the cutoff point. So worrying about something, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm going to get to the um, studio on time. Oh, I'll go turn down this way and that'll help me. That's a good use of worry because then you're taking action in some way. But the worry thoughts that are upper limit problems are worry thoughts that usually occur well more than three times. You keep recycling them over and over and over again. And so repetitive worry is one of the first ways you can know that you have an upper limit problem. And so if you think about it, worry is probably the easiest way of upper limiting yourself. I think in The Big Leap, I talk about, I was walking down the street one day feeling really, really good. And then I looked in the window of a jewelry store as I was passing by and I saw a beautiful ring or necklace and I walked on past it and then I started thinking, gee, I haven't given Katie a jewel in a long time. Oh gosh, you know, and, and so within about 20 steps, I'm feeling bad about myself just because I saw a beautiful jewel. And so that's a classic example of the upper limit problem. Another way you can tell you have an upper limit problem is um, times when you injure yourself or get sick or kind of, especially when, when some bad feeling comes over you kind of out of nowhere. Uh, not because you have a cold or not because you have the flu or anything like that. You just suddenly don't feel good. Well, oftentimes that's an upper limit problem. And so a lot of us use illness and accidents as upper limits so that you start feeling, uh, well, oh, here's a great one I just saw this week. A good friend of mine uh, fell in love with an actor who's in a movie um, that's just now having its grand premiere, Mission Impossible. And they flew to Italy for the um, premiere of the movie. And she'd never walked a red carpet before because, uh, I mean, she'd never been in love with an actor that was in a, a red carpet movie before. And so 
she walked the red carpet for the first time and she slipped and had a little slip and fall, you know? So that's a classic upper limit because here's the best moment of her life in a way, you know? And, ah, and some part of her must have felt, oh, I don't deserve this. And so, you know, she had to punish herself in some way. And so many illnesses and many accidents are like a light punishment we administer to ourselves because we think we've felt too good, uh, that we've um, busted through some old norm. See, a lot of us feel loyal to our families of origin. We have a deal, an unconscious deal, not to be more successful or not to feel better than them. And so if you start feeling really good or you move into a better house than your parents live in, it's likely to trigger an upper limit problem. Like, do I deserve this? What have I done to deserve this? And so those kinds of things happen all the time in life. Most of them don't involve a slip and fall on a red carpet for a premiere of a movie. Most of them are little tiny things uh, that occur, like little stubbing your toe or accidentally breaking a glass. What were you thinking just before you broke that glass? That's a good question to ask because a lot of times, you know, you might be thinking of somebody you had a conflict with and, you know, immediately you transferred some of those feelings onto breaking a glass. Um, I think once I read a study that a majority of single car accidents happen within an hour after an emotional upset. And, you know, a classic example of that happened to a couple of friends of mine. They got into an argument and she got hungry for something that they only sell down at the 7-Eleven store on the corner. And so right in the middle of the argument, she wanted to go down and get these fudge brownies. And she got into the car and crashed into the back of somebody else down at the store. So she didn't get her brownies. She didn't resolve the argument. And it compounded the whole situation because then her husband had to come down and kind of bail her out. So those kinds of things happen a lot because instead of being with some emotional moment or clearing up whatever the conflict is, oftentimes we push the conflict under the rug and uh, go out for a platter of uh, brownies. It's very interesting. Two, two stories that you mentioned. One is you would end up eating ice creams on Sundays right after a good workout. And another one, it's an accident. So so we we both have had very similar observations that every time we would go to, you know, go to the gym or we would work out consistently, eat, eat healthy for say two to three weeks at a time, you know, we would fall back to our old patterns of eating something unhealthy. And especially for me, I would always end up injuring myself either in the gym or somewhere else. Um, I want to share a situation with you that happened three months ago. Uh, so a few of our really close friends from Phoenix, they were flying to New York to, to celebrate a friend's 30th birthday. So we, we all had extensive plans for that entire week, which is two hours before them landing on landing to New, landing in New, in New York. I, I was in the rock climbing gym and I, I fell down and met with an accident and I broke my ankle. I'm really fortunate that, that I'm alive, but I had to undergo emergency surgeries. 
provide that night itself so do you think that is an upper limit problem or it's just my carelessness well if something if if something only happens one time i don't usually I don't recommend making too big a thing of it, but if you have a theme, like you've hurt yourself in similar situations before, that is worth paying attention to. Uh, it's interesting that you should mention that because 12 weeks ago, I broke the first bone in my body that I've ever broken. I had a slip and fall out by my swimming pool on a rainy day and I cracked my femur, my thigh bone in five places and also cracked my uh, bones in my knee. And um, so I've been rehabbing that for the past three months. And I first had to look at that, you know, hmm, upper limit. Um, and uh, but I couldn't come up with any good reason for it because, you know, everything was about, everything's been great for many years in my life. It wasn't being especially great that particular week or anything. Uh, so sometimes accidents just happen. Uh, but what you want to look at is any themes, you know, like a client of mine on a thir third or fourth occasion got a sore throat on a day she was supposed to give a big speech to fellow executives. Now, once, maybe just bad luck, you know, twice, three times, that begins to predict a theme. And she realized that she had some feelings, like I point out in The Big Leap, a lot of us go around with a feeling of being fundamentally flawed. There's something I feel that's fundamentally wrong with me that keeps me from enjoying the good things of life. And she had a classic example of that. Unfortunately, she read The Big Leap, so uh, she knew to come in and uh, do a little bit of work on that right away. So same. You mentioned about the example that you fell and you you were analyzing things. Is that an upper limit problem? What are the tactical steps you take to to solve that? Say if it is an upper limit problem, how do I overcome that? Yes, that's a great question. Well, the first thing we need to do is look underneath the upper limit problem for what the specific fear is that triggers it. And in the big leap, I lay out, you know, three or four of the big ones. Like the big one is that fear of that I'm fundamentally flawed and therefore I don't deserve good things. So when good things start to happen, I punish myself or don't let myself experience them. A second one, though, is really important, especially people in our world, you know, people that are interested in changing themselves and coaches and uh, people who are healers and uh, doctors and that sort of thing. It's really important to look at a second fear, which is the fear of not letting the light shine on me. In other words, that I don't deserve to have the light shine on me. I don't deserve to be fully appreciated. And a lot of times, interestingly enough, those folks grow up in families where there was maybe an older boy who was the golden boy or an older girl who was the golden girl and and they weren't it they were kind of number 2 or number 3 down the down the line and so that gives them that that I don't deserve to have the light shine on me fully um and so that fear keeps a lot of people pulled back from expressing their full potential in life because 
they basically don't feel like they're entitled to it. A third fear is the fear of being disloyal to people in your past. Usually it's your family of origin, but it could be other people. But what I mean by that is, you know, like uh, I work with a woman who's a very powerful executive, but she has a kind of a dependent relationship with her husband of many years. And so, you know, she'll be head of the boardroom at work, but then come home and allow him to pick on her, you know? And so she doesn't occupy the fullness of herself in her marriage as she does in the boardroom. And as we were working on that and trying to figure out why that is, she came up with that whole disloyalty thing that if she stands up and takes her full ownership of her marriage and doesn't let her husband boss her around, her mother and father had this incredibly dependent marriage. And so she felt honor bound to have that same kind of relationship in her own life. Now, this was totally unconscious to her up until we talked about it. She didn't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I think I'm going to be in a submissive relationship. It was just what she felt compelled to do. But once she broke out of that trance and realized, well, wait a minute. If my husband really loves me, he'll love me as much or more if I take up my full measure. And it's been so beautiful to watch her, you know, get out of that kind of one up, one down kind of relationship where he's the controller and she's doesn't get to be the boss. And so to watch them come out of that and still have a great relationship is one of the great joys that I get to experience in my life. Well, you probably do, too, because you get to see people going through transformations all the time yourselves. I feel like we as humans, we subconsciously were afraid of feeling good for a longer period of time. And it might have to do with evolution. And in your work, you had mentioned that in like 2009 in your book, you had mentioned that you and your wife hadn't fought in like 12 years. And for someone in a relationship who don't want to fight with their significant other, who want to have a better relationship with people in their lives, what steps can we take so we don't create arguments because of like, you know, uh, upper limit problem, or um, we, we, we understand our pattern and then work on it? Yes. Well, um, at this point, Katie and I, like I said, have been married 44 years and we haven't had an argument this century. Um, I can't even remember even back in the other century, the last time. But here's the thing. If you want to create an argument free zone, first of all, you have to make a commitment to that. Katie and I made a commitment to each each other many years ago that we wanted to have our relationship be a blame-free zone where nobody ever criticized or blamed the other person. And so we wanted a relationship that ran on positive energy. And when negative stuff came up, we had a way to deal with it in a way that we could get back into the positive zone. So that's where 
we came up with these basic simple rules like telling the truth always and in all ways. So I'm angry with you. I'm scared right now. I feel sad. I feel joy right now. I love you so much. Those kinds of little statements of authentic feeling, you have to become a master of doing that in relationship. You can't see so many of us come in relationships with a defense system where we have fear of really letting somebody else in or fear of really going into somebody ourselves. And just based on stuff that happened in childhood and rejections we've had, you know, by the time I got to Katie, I had any number of rejections and relationships that fell apart. So you have to make a commitment that's to a relationship that runs on positive energy because so many people are addicted to arguing. They're addicted to it because they get a burst of adrenaline every time they blame the other person or get into a big argument and raise their voice. It flushes out adrenaline out of the system. A very strong drug is adrenaline. And if that's the best drug you're going to have every day, you know, that's what'll you'll keep producing because it gives you some juice and vitality for a short period of time. It only lasts for a few minutes. And it's a very dangerous addiction, though, because after a while, if you become conflict addicted, basically you're hassling each other all the time. Um, I, God bless them, my in-laws, Katie's parents, they were married for like 55 years, but they bickered constantly. I bet you've known relationships like that too, where there's just little snipe, 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 snipe. And oh man, Katie and I realized that in early in our relationship, we caught ourselves doing that one day. And we said, oh no, <laughs> we don't want to be anything like that. Uh, actually, it's funny because her parents had come to visit for three days, like about a year into our relationship. And they did it the whole time. You were always little snipes. And after they left, Katie and I were doing that one day and we suddenly realized, wait a minute, we're just doing an old pattern. Let's break that up. So we made a commitment to creating a blame and criticism free zone in our relationship. It took us some years to do that because, you know, we were in the habit of blaming and in the habit of withholding the truth and because we'd been in other relationships and all that. So we had to invent a new way of being. And it probably took us three or four years to do that. But then, by golly, for the last you know, 35 years, without any blame or criticism or negative energy in our relationship, we'd been free to you know, co-author 12 books together and go around the world, 2 million frequent flyer miles teaching relationship seminars and going to Chicago to be on Oprah many times and all those kinds of things that we got to do in our life as a result of just doing those three simple things to speak honestly about whatever you're feeling, to take responsibility for what's coming up instead of blaming, and to put attention on your creativity. I haven't talked about that, but that is so important to get in the habit of expressing your creativity. Because the more you can get your own creativity flowing, 
the less you'll take it out on the relationships around you. You know, many of us take it out on the relationships around us because we're closed off to our own juicy center of creativity. And if you're closed off to that, uh, life just doesn't go as well in any dimension. Since you mentioned about creativity, I love your book, The Genius Zone. And you mentioned in that book that to be truly happy, one should spend the majority of their time doing what they most love while also making the greatest contribution to the world. So what if someone doesn't know what they love or what they are truly passionate about and what what if they're like not even aware of it? That's a great question. Thank you for bringing, bringing that to the light. Well, let, let me give you an example. Um, when we work with executives like the CEO of a big organization, the company usually sends them here for one day and that's the only person we work with or sometimes even up to three days. And so we work with that person all day. And one of the first things we do is we have them go in a room by themselves. There's nothing in the room. There's absolutely nothing to do. There's a chair, that's it. And we ask them to do two things. And we ask them to do it for 10 minutes, which doesn't seem like a long time, but let me explain what they do. For 10 minutes, all they do is ask the question, and we always have them do it with a hmm, a hum of genuine wonder. Hmm, what do I most love to do? Ask the question and then take three easy, deep breaths. So taking three easy breaths after you've wondered about the question. Gives the question time to resonate. So your mind doesn't jump in right away with some idea that you think you ought to have, but you just give yourself space. You wonder and then open up a space of wondering. And that is such a gift to yourself because almost nobody does that. Almost nobody gives themselves the experience of genuinely wondering about something that's important to them. They try to think about it, but that's different, trying to come up with mental solutions. It's different to experience pure wonder. And uh, in one of Einstein's notebooks, he talks about wondering about a particular physics problem every day for 27 years. So every day he reawakened wonder about a particular problem in physics. Well, back to our executive that goes in the room. After 10 minutes of doing that, some people come out and say, I got the whole $25,000 worth for their day, even after 10 minutes, because they've never given themselves the experience of wonder, of pure wonder. And, you know, like an executive said to us, if I could just do that for 10 minutes a day, my life would transform. But habit patterns are so great that you have to make a major new commitment. Like I've been a daily meditator every day since 1972 or so. So a little over 50 years. I just had my 50th anniversary of being a daily meditator. So that's meditating for about 20 or 30 minutes, or, you know, 30 or 40 minutes every day, uh, twice a day. Um, 
without missing a day for 50 years. Now, why would I do something like that? For one thing, it feels great to have a clear mind and an at-ease body that I do after I meditate. It feels great. Another thing, though, it fulfills a commitment to, to myself to take some time each day for myself. You know, one of my friends who's a yoga teacher, a very successful yoga teacher, she has three kids and a husband and everything. And so she has a whole homemaker thing going in addition to a full-time yoga practice. And yet she said that if I can give myself one hour to myself every day, I'm good for giving back the other 23 to other people. But if I don't give myself that hour a day to do my own yoga practice and do my own meditation, then I can't give anything to anybody. And so, you know, there's a good reason on air or airplanes. They say when you when you pull down the um, breathing bag, use it on yourself first <laughs> and uh, that um, and then begin to help other people. See, so you, you mentioned about addictions and and commitment as well same if some people are really addicted to their previous emotions be it aggress aggression or be it bickering or being frustration how how does one make a strong commitment and not going back to the old behaviors great question well it re it requires commitment and recommitment that, see, if a person is standing here in my office, I will ask them to make a commitment. Let, let's say um, let's say they've had a problem with not being able to tell the truth in a relationship. So I'll say, say the following sentence to me, John. I commit to absolute honesty in my relationships. And then John says, I commit to absolute honesty in my relationships. And I say, John, you didn't sound very lively or deeply committed that. Try that again, but put some heart behind it. And then says, he'll say, oh, you know, trying to fake being excited about it. So you work down through layers of commitment until you get to the, to the real thing. If you're not working with somebody in the office or something, you can't really do that. You just have to keep recommitting to yourself. Recommitment is incredibly important, though, because it it works like the example I use with my um, clients and students is the automatic pilot on an airplane. That if I uh, you're in New York, I'm in L.A., uh, if I get on a plane in L.A., the pilot doesn't steer it all the way with both hands on the wheel. What they do is they program in some coordinates and it says head to that coordinate and the machine takes over and says okay we're on it oh we're drifting a little to the right correct to the left oh we're drifting a little to the left correct to the right and it does that hundreds thousands of times while the pilot's sitting there having lunch and um, having a chat about what they're going to do for the weekend and so if you think about it the airplane gets to New York by being wrong most of the time because it's drifted more than it's been on dead center. And so we need to get that implanted in ourselves so we stop catastrophizing when we drift off course. We need to just say, okay, recommitment. Okay, recommitment. 
And I like, you know, I used to be very obese 50 years ago. And now I'm a healthy weight. I'm about 180 pounds. I'm about six feet tall. So I'm, you know, an athletic looking guy. And, um, but I used to look more like a pear, shaped like a pear. And in order to get from that body to my current body, I've had to recommit a thousand times or more to being healthy again. Because, you know, what happens in life, like happened the other day, I had a great breakfast, had a very light lunch, and then we went at four o'clock to help a friend of ours celebrate buying and moving into a new house. And they had all this fancy food there. And oh, God, you know, I, 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 some of it just found its way into my mouth unconsciously, you know. And so I went into the evening kind of oh, feeling like I had a giant lead ball in my belly because party food is uh, it's not designed to make you feel healthy the next day, you know. And so um, but um, so even at a fairly enlightened stage of the game, we have to keep recommitting, recommitting, recommitting. And now, generally speaking, it doesn't take me as long to kind of recommit. Uh, in the old days, it used to take me weeks. Now it takes me seconds. I I think recommit, recommitment is like one of the most powerful concepts um, that I've learned from your work. Because like before I would work out for a few weeks and then eat healthy food. But then after a few weeks, I would just start eating junk food and not think about the concept of recommitment. And now if I eat healthy for a week and then on weekend, if I go out and like not eat healthy, I'm like, okay, time to recommit. Let me go back to recommitment. So that has been a very, very powerful um, tool that I use in my daily life. It's so amazing. Um, I once, um, interestingly enough, I, I once... Um, I was traveling for a month in India and I decided while I was there, I was going to be a vegetarian and just eat as pure food as I could. And I did. And I was so feeling so healthy when I flew back to London and I had one bite of a chocolate bar and it almost made me feel like I was hallucinating suddenly to get all of that refined sugar you know, hitting my nervous system after a month of purity. And like Mick Jagger said, why did you quit using drugs? And he said, well, I went to a bunch of funerals. And uh, so, you know, if you see somebody else or yourself engaging in behavior that makes them sick or makes them unhealthy, after a while it begins to, oh, okay, you know, and... Um, so I'm I'm kind of sad to say it took me more years than I would care to admit to really getting a completely healthy lifestyle going. But, you know, there's nothing like waking up in the morning feeling incredible zest for what's going on in the day. And that's my normal state now, except when I go to a big housewarming party and eat a lot of junk food. I woke up this, the next morning feeling I was carrying a bowling ball around in my belly. That's what happens when you uh, eat too much of the uh, the cheese, the melted cheese, you know. Oh, I can't believe that uh, now, but uh, 
took me three days to work off that melted cheese. <laughs> um, I think one of the concepts that you mentioned in your book, The Conscious Luck, is, is that luck is something that you create and it's not something that happens to you. Can you shine some more light onto that? How can I create my own luck? Oh, I'm really glad you asked that question because um, that's one of the most undiscovered powers that people have is the power of owning their luck instead of projecting their luck onto other people and saying, oh, other people win the lottery, et cetera, not for me. To own it, to go ahead and own being lucky. It won't cost you a nickel. Um, I, I had the good fortune in the ninth grade of having a good example. It left such an impression on me that I've been working on it ever since. And uh, I tell the story in the book, there was this kid that I sat next to at a movie and I knew him somewhat, but I didn't know him real well. And they were doing a drawing at the movie where they took all of our tickets. We had to write our name on the back and they put it in a goldfish bowl. And then um, they had an intermission and they stirred up the ones and pulled out five winners. And so there was 250 people in the audience. And before they had the drawing, this kid said to me, I'm going to win one of the prizes. And the top prize was a wristwatch, which was pretty good. 1959, you know, I mean, it was a high tech item at the time. And uh, so um, I said, okay. And they had the drawing and by golly, he won the first prize. And afterwards I said, how did you do that? How did you know? And he said, well, I always win stuff like that. Not always first prize, but I always win. And he told me that he had decided one day consciously to be lucky. Now, this was a kid in the ninth grade, 14 years old. And he told me that what had happened was he noticed that people in his family were always talking about how unlucky they were and how, oh, you know, somebody else would have something good. Why doesn't that ever happen to us? And so they were always reinforcing the idea that they were unlucky and that other people were the lucky ones. Well, this kid, and this is in a redneck town of 10,000 people in central Florida, Leesburg, Florida, you know, 40 miles from Orlando, the biggest town. And it wasn't in, in a hotbed of enlightened by any means. I have no idea where he came up with the idea. But he had revisioned himself as a lucky person. And from that day on, he was a lucky person. Well, I took it to heart and I did something that landed me on the front page of the newspaper. I decided, okay, well, if it's that simple, I'll just say, okay, from here on out, I'm lucky. Right after that, I can't remember if it was a few days or a week or whatever, but it was soon after I made that transition. I was in a magazine shop that was also part of it was a coin dealership where coin collectors gathered and exchanged coins and stuff. And so I left, I, I was a coin collector at the time. I loved coin collecting when I was in the seventh, eighth, ninth grade. And so I left the, the um, 
shop and I was going to um, go to the movies. And there was a satchel right out in front of the shop next to a parking meter. And there was nobody around, but I recognized the satchel because there had been a famous coin collector, a very wealthy man in the shop early doing some kind of coin deal. And I recognized that satchel, which had his portable coin collection in it. And immediately I saw what had happened. He was quite an elderly man, probably my age now in his 70s. And I pictured what happened. He put the, the satchel down to put some coins in the meter and then walked off without the satchel. So I picked up the satchel and took it back into the shop. And the owner of the shop came running out and said, oh, my God, where did you get that? And I said, well, Ned, I just walked out and it was um, by the parking meter. I know it belongs to whatever the man's name is. And he said, oh, yeah, my God, that probably has $50,000 worth of coins in it. Um, and so I gave it to Ned and I didn't even think anything about it. I went to the movies. When I got out, I found that two hours later, a real uproar had occurred because the man and his wife had gone and had had lunch at a restaurant and then realized his satchel was missing. And so he called the police and actually locked down the restaurant and searched everybody for his satchel. And then he went back to the shop to tell Ned about it. And Ned said, here, this, this kid, uh, Gay Hendricks, found this out in front of the shop next to the parking meter. And the man, uh, you know, he <laughs> practically had a meltdown. But they looked all over the place. They didn't know I was in the movies, just a block away. And so they looked all over because the guy wanted to give me a present. And turned out what he wanted to give me was a complete set of um, buffalo nickels and something that I collected avidly. They don't make those anymore. And so, um, but this was a complete set of like perfect ones, no wear and tear on them or anything like that. Just perfect. I mean, it was a mind boggling gift to a kid that you know, like I got a 50 cent allowance every week, you know, so suddenly there's this set of Buffalo nickels that would have cost me, you know, 40 or $50 to buy. So, and not only that, I got my, my picture and a story about me on the front page of the paper where this, the kid that found the $50,000 satchel and gave it back. That's amazing. It's really interesting how we can manufacture our own luck. I totally am a big believer of that. Mm. Yeah, we we have a few questions, especially regarding Einstein time, but I know we are running out of time. <laughs> so, Well, let um, me talk quickly about Einstein time. Okay. Um, basically, take responsibility for making up the time you need to do the things that you most love to do. Take responsibility for time rather than thinking you're the victim of time. People are always going around pleading victim. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't have time to do that. Oh, I wish I had more time. I'd love to chat with you, I just don't have time. You know, we're always pleading the victim of time. Take responsibility for it. It will change your life. Mm. So how can, how can one take responsibility of time? Just like taking ownership of anything else, you take it on and just own it. I own time. Say it a few times. I own time. 
because time is not over there on that clock. It's your experience of it. Because I could look at that clock and say, wow, what a beautiful time it is. And you could look at that clock and say, oh, my God, that's terrible because I'm late. I'm late for something else. Speaking of being late for something else, my friends, I'm going to uh, respectfully come to a close with our conversation and wish you well. Thank yeah. you so much for your time. This Thank is wonderful. All right. Many blessings to you.